0: All right. Good evening, everybody. <clears throat> it's good to see you. Tonight is the last night of our series on that we've started this early part of 2020 on what the Bible says about difficult topics. And so this is our sixth and final week. So we will not be meeting next week. We'll pick back up, Lord willing, um, in sometime maybe late spring, early summer. Just kind of keep your ears peeled for that. But tonight... We want to think about uh, a very challenging and culturally hot topic, the topic of homosexuality and as a kind of secondary issue, the issue of transgenderism. Now, um, I know that this for many of us is a very personal issue, something that has touched some of our lives, even in our own families. And certainly people that we know and love, even if we're not related to them. And I also realize that there are Bible-believing Christians that um, struggle with all manner of of sin. And so there may even be people in this room who this is uh, a very personal issue with. And so we want to think deeply and compassionately, but clearly about what the Bible says about these issues. So uh, I'm going to pray and we're going to get into it. Um, Let me give you our outline just to sort of set the course of what we're going to do tonight. We're just going to have it up on the screen. We've kind of got three main headers there. We're going to look at homosexuality, and then we're going to look at transgenderism, and then what our posture should be as Christians. So underneath each of the two main issues that we're going to think about tonight, biblically homosexuality and transgenderism, we're going to ask and hopefully answer three questions. What does the Bible say? about homosexuality and then subsequently transgenderism what uh, are there are there what are the arguments for the acceptance of homosexuality and transgenderism and then uh, can a person practice homosexuality or or be transgender and be a christian we're going to think about those things and then again we'll end with uh, our time uh, looking at what our posture should be as Christians. I also want to leave some time for questions and, and thoughts um, from from you. I will say this, that um, let's make sure if we have thoughts or questions at the end, we want to try and be as concise as possible uh, so that other people that may have questions, we can kind of get to as much as we can. And then right at 7 30, I think we're, we're going to have to Um, transition and um, pray and end our time because we've got a meeting tonight and we have a guest coming to our elder meeting that we want to respect his time. So let me open up with prayer and we'll get right into it. Lord, thank you for your grace to us as a church and as your people. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that you have sent your son Jesus to save sinners and we are all by nature sinners and those of us that are trusting in Jesus in the finished work of your son, you have renewed, redeemed, reconciled to yourself. You've made us new, but all of us, regardless of where we are in our sanctification, in our growth in christ likeness, all of us are still wrestling with our old man, with sin. And so we want to posture ourselves in humility, but also in clarity, and we want to we we want to understand what the Bible says so that we can be a clearer witness to a broken world around us about the good news of the gospel. So I pray that you'd help us to think deeply and wisely and biblically tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, homosexuality. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? I want us to think I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. Uh, you can find on our website some places where where I preached um, a Sunday morning sermon, I think on one or two occasions, and then we did a, a, another midweek fellowship maybe four or five years ago. So there are some longer teachings that I'm going uh, to kind of distill and go through pretty quickly, some of the points that we've made before. So if you want to find those, you can go to our website and just just type in the keyword you know gospel, homosexuality and, and the messages will come up. But I want us to think about what the Bible says about homosexuality really in three categories. We're going to look at the Old Testament. We're going to look at then um, what Paul says in the New Testament. And then what Jesus says about it in the New Testament as well. And there are about six verses in the Bible that speak to this issue of homosexuality. But first, let's, let's just frame the whole idea of, of humanity and what it means to be male and female. So in the beginning opening chapters of Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis... We see right there in the first chapter of Genesis that God has created mankind and has created them in His image. So men are not more of image bearers of God than women, and women are not more of image bearers than men. We are co-image bearers together in Christ. We made this point when we looked about the issue of how genders are to relate to one another and specifically the issue of the role of women in church. We came to some conclusions on that, but we must be clear about the fact that God has made men and women and they are co-heirs, equal together as both having the co-dignity of the image of God, although they have different roles. And then we see in Genesis 2, uh, starting in verse 18, it says, Then God said, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And, and, and look again at verse 24 there. That's a very important point there. Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Genesis 2 that a man and a woman will become one flesh. Now that is obviously a spiritual union, but I believe it's also a physical union. And the... the the point here that's going on in the creation of men and women as equals, but complementary equals, is that they are fit for one another. And even on an anatomical level, the, uh, when a man and a woman come together as a husband and wife, their bodies anatomically fit together. There is a fittedness to the male anatomy and the female anatomy and when they come together in that way, there is a oneness. And that oneness, even in an earthly sense, even though that oneness is meant for procreation and for obviously marital intimacy and joy, that's actually a kind of picture pointing to something even far greater than just fleshly oneness, but it's pointing to the oneness of the gospel itself where Christ who is portrayed in the scriptures as the heavenly groom comes and joins himself in a spiritual sense to his bride, the church, and we are one with him in Christ through his reconciliation on the cross and his victorious resurrection. So, even the, 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 the physical realities of our anatomy and the fittedness of the male and female body is a kind of echo of the very gospel itself. But we see then in Genesis chapter 3 that everything, there's a fall there, and mankind, sin enters into humanity and it distorts, it disrupts, it pollutes, it taints every aspect of humankind. And so sin now has entered humanity and death has entered humanity. And although mankind still bears the image of God, mankind is fractured tainted, dead in his sin, separated from God. And as a response to the sin that has entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, later on in the Old Testament, God gives his law through Moses, and that law is to regulate and to mediate and to govern mankind, to show him his sin, and to show him God's righteousness and to show him the holiness that is needed that ultimately points towards Jesus. So whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you read the law, think of it in third, three sort of three things that the law is telling us. It's showing us what's wrong, it's showing us our sinfulness. It's showing us what's right, God's holiness. But ultimately the law is showing us what's needed which is Christ who will come and fully and finally obey God for us because we can never fully obey the law. But the law comes to shine light on human sinfulness and to govern, to call people to holiness. And this is what part of God's law says. And these are two Old Testament verses that speak directly to the issue of homosexuality. In Leviticus, the law writes, Moses writes, Leviticus 18 verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as a woman, it is an abomination. In Leviticus 20, two chapters over in verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. There is blood upon them. So nobody disputes that the Old Testament law clearly condemns homosexual practice. And that's rooted in God's design for humanity that men and women have been anatomically, physically created to complement one another. But sin came, and part of one of the consequences, one of the many consequences of the fall, was sexual sin and sexual disorientation all across the spectrum. And here in Leviticus, we see God clearly condemning homosexual practice, along with many other things, obviously, in the law, all sorts of heterosexual sin as well. So that's what the Old Testament says. What does the New Testament say? Paul, in in three verses, uh, prohibits it primarily, probably the most important verse, is Romans chapter 1, where Paul clearly speaks about this issue. Let me start reading in verse 24. Romans chapter 1 is a really important chapter. Paul is building the case about the fallenness of all humanity and how all of humanity has suppressed the truth. That we have really, in a sense, all mankind shook our fist at God in a rejection of His clear Godship and the created order. And so in verse 24, we pick up and it says, Therefore, because of our rejection of God, God gave them up, Not in them is us, it's all of mankind. God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And don't we see that in fallen humanity? We worship created things. We worship trinkets and stuff rather than the creator. And sometimes those created things are intangible things. Sometimes they're things like money and possessions and prestige and political power, all those things. Those are created. We're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's the problem with mankind. Verse 26 For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, Paul here is not saying that this is the only consequence of man's rejection of God. But he's saying that, he's highlighting homosexual practice here as, as a, a, a type of sin that is particularly putting on display man's rejection of the created order. So even the, and I'm, I'm speaking with compassion here, but I think we need to be clear about this. Even as we look at our physical bodies, and there's just a sensible, natural, Reason for our anatomy that just fits, where a man's body fits with a woman's body, as as, as sort of the, the, the clearest picture of man's rejection of God as sovereign over all and as the good creator, mankind has taken the most fundamental thing about his personal aspect of creation, our very own bodies, and it has turned them against. The very reason that God has created them. And so he's not saying here that that homosexuality is the only sin that's a result of the fall, but he's saying it's the clearest picture of the rebellion of mankind at our core about who we are as humans, men and women. And Paul is clearly, clearly um, prohibiting homosexual practice. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Verses 9 through 11, or do you not know? This is the, another verse where Paul speaks of homosexuality. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. What is sexual immorality? It comes from a Greek word, meaning pornea, me, from which we get the word pornography. But it means any sexual practice, heterosexual or homosexual, any sexual practice, outside of the one flesh union between one man and one woman. So Paul's going to list some categories of sin here, and notice it's not just homosexuality, but it does include homosexuality. So he says, who's going to inherit the kingdom of God? Who will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So again, let's not forget that Paul mentions a great list of sins, the vast majority of which are not homosexuality, but clearly in this list is homosexuality. So we're going to make the point here that that it's not just homosexuality that we're concerned with, it's all sexual sin. In fact, it's all sin that the gospel addresses. But the issue tonight that we're zeroing in on is whether or not homosexual practice is compatible with biblical Christianity. And clearly, in this list, Paul here has included it with the things that are not. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul's final place where he addresses homosexuality. He says in verse 8, "...now we know that the law is good." If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So we have Old Testament that's clearly prohibiting homosexual practice. We have Paul clearly prohibiting homosexual practice. And again, I want to say also prohibiting all other sin too. But again, our issue tonight to consider is homosexuality. And then we have Jesus, I think also in an indirect way addressing it. Jesus in the gospels in Matthew chapter 19. And one of the charges, one of the arguments that people put forward to to, for the acceptance of homosexuality in Christianity is this notion that Jesus they say, did not address homosexuality in the gospels i 'm going to answer that in just a moment i don 't think that holds water. I think implicit in what Jesus says here in Matthew 19 does address all sexual sin outside of the one flesh union between a man and a woman. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 when he 's describing and he 's outlining what human sexuality should look like. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus is referencing Genesis 2 that we read. And he said, here he quotes it, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries and marries another, commits adultery. And so Jesus here paints a picture of what sexual morality looks like, and it's the one flesh union between one man and one woman. And Jesus even uses this phrase sexual immorality in another place in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 verse 19, Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false false witness, slander. And when Jesus is using what we've translated into English sexual immorality, In every Greek lexicon and dictionary, this word would encompass all sexual activity outside of the one flesh union between one man and one woman. So implicit in the word or the phrase sexual immorality in the New Testament is all sexual sin, including heterosexual adultery, fornication, and homosexuality. So the conclusion is clear. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? The Bible is utterly clear on this. That all sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife, whether heterosexual or homosexual, if continued in and given over to, is incompatible with the Christian life. So we're making the statement that homosexuality is incompatible with faithful Christian living as is, and I keep emphasizing this, all other manner of sexual sin. Okay, let's not, let's not forget that. So then, what are the main arguments for those that would, uh, would, would propose or argue for the acceptance of homosexuality as a legitimate Christian lifestyle. And we're going to talk about some nuances in just a moment when we talk about people that are wrestling with varying types of sin. But right now, I want us to look at the arguments for those that say that it is okay for somebody to give themselves over to homosexual practice. Almost always, they argue for a monogamous uh, relationship between two people, and that if you are in a loving, monogamous relationship, that is homosexual, the homosexual, that, that they're arguing that is compatible with the Bible. What are their arguments? Where does that come from? Well, I have six quick things I'll take you through. It's the six most offered arguments. Um, the first, and this is actually an argument, and, and again, I'm not being sarcastic, but I'm just trying to be clear, is the first is a simple disregard for the authority of the Bible, a simple disregard for the authority of scriptures. Now, there's a well-known New Testament scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson. He is a professor at the Candler School of Theology up in Emory. And he writes this. He wrote this in an article called Homosexuality in the Church, Scripture and Experience. He says, I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of scripture And appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God created us. So here's a New Testament scholar who's saying, we just don't believe that the Bible is authoritative on this issue. And I I at least appreciate his honesty. And so there are some that would just hold, that would not hold to the authority of the Bible. And they would say, those are ancient texts that don't have modern application or authority over us today. The second argument would be that Jesus did not address it specifically, and um, so therefore, since Jesus, who's this, who's obviously the, the 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 picture, the paragon, uh, uh, the, the 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 pinnacle of all that it means to follow Christ, if Jesus didn't mention it, it seems like maybe you know Paul in the Old Testament maybe got it wrong. Those aren't really authoritative texts, and Jesus is this clearest picture of what it means to follow him. And they say Jesus didn't specifically address it, and so therefore it doesn't, you know, there's no force behind these other texts. Well, that argument is, is, I think, just really misinformed, and it's a misunderstanding, a complete misunderstanding of just how the Bible works, the misunderstanding of the inspiration of scriptures. The, it separates out the Trinity. The Bible, all of the Bible is written by all of the Godhead. So to look at Jesus's words, some people, if you ever hear, hear a Christian call themselves, well, I'm a red letter Christian. I just focus on the red letters, as if the words, the actual words of Jesus have a kind of special authority. That, although it may be well-intended, sort of sounds kind of spiritual, I'm just gonna focus on what Jesus says, is a complete misunderstanding of the, 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 just the doctrine of the word of God all of the Bible, is all of God's words. And so when Paul is speaking, Jesus is speaking. When Moses is speaking in the Old Testament, Jesus is speaking. God the Father is speaking. God the Holy Spirit is speaking. And so it's just it's just a, a very basic and elementary error to say that Jesus didn't address homosexuality because when the Bible addresses homosexuality, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are addressing homosexuality. And I think we can make a very clear argument by implication that when Jesus speaks about human sexuality in those verses we read in Matthew 19 and 15, he is, by implication, addressing all of human sexuality, saying that there's only one Faithful expression of human sexuality, which is the one flesh union between a man and a woman. I mean, Jesus did not Jesus did not explicitly teach on bestiality, but we all understand instinctively that that is out of bounds. So that argument does not hold water. Probably the most popular argument, and this is being put forth by a young man named Matthew Vines, who wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian several years ago. He is a winsome and a good communicator, and he himself is gay. And he has written this book um, that is arguing for the acceptance of homosexuality as being a legitimate, monogamous homosexuality as being a legitimate lifestyle for the Christian. And his, his, some of his YouTube videos and his book have been persuasive uh, particularly in some college campuses and other places. And his main argument is that the type of homosexuality that is condemned in the Bible is not the same type of homosexuality that we see today. And the argument is that what Paul, because nobody denies it, what Paul is saying in Romans especially, is a clear prohibition of homosexual practice. And what what these people who have this line of thinking are saying is oh no no what Paul was was condemning in Romans was uh, was was exploitive homosexuality, homosexuality that involved maybe pedophilia or rape or molestation. It wasn't voluntary um, sort of love intimacy between two consenting people. And so they're reading that into the text. The problem with that is that that just doesn't hold water in the text. In fact, even in Romans chapter 1 verse 27, Paul, when he is condemning this practice of homosexuality, he describes the men as being consumed with passion for one another. So it it just doesn't hold water that it is exploitive. And we do actually see artwork and literature and other references in first century literature about consensual homosexual relationships. And so uh, this, art, this argument really just doesn't uh, hold uh, any credibility with, with any legitimate Bible scholars, even people that argue for the acceptance of homosexuality biblically. Uh, they really follow the, the thinking of Luke Timothy Johnson, who just say, you know what, the Bible's clear about this. It condemns homosexual practice, even consensual homosexual practice. We just don't think the Bible's authoritative. Um, so this is, I think, again, not a good argument. Another argument that I think trips up many Christians um, is that people say, well, we are picking and choosing what we want from the Old Testament and bringing it forward into the new. And so sometimes the argument will go, well, I know that Leviticus verse says that homosexuality is an abomination, but you know what Leviticus also says? It says that you shouldn't eat shellfish or it says that you shouldn't wear a a shirt that has two types of fabric in it. All those things are condemned in the Old Testament law, and we don't follow those things now either. So why are we picking things like homosexuality from Leviticus and saying that those things are still enforced today? Well, that line of reasoning is a significant misunderstanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the purpose of the Old Testament law in the life of a new covenant Christian. The Old Testament law was given as an instructor, a shadow, to show people what was wrong, what was right, and what was needed. In the New Testament, we read, in Romans chapter 8 specifically, where Jesus fulfills all of the requirements of the law for us. So the law has been satisfied, but now Christians, new covenant Christians are not governed by the old covenant tablets of stone, the Mosaic law, although they point towards the new new covenant. We are now governed by what the New Testament calls the spirit of the law of love or the spirit of the law of Christ, which is now written in our hearts. And that's the New Testament all of Jesus's teachings. And in Jesus's teaching and in the New Testament and in Paul's writings, the New Testament, even it's, yes, we don't have to eat these certain type of foods or wear these type of fabrics or do this sacrificial system because Jesus has fulfilled all of that. But the morality morality that the Old Testament law was pointing to, especially the sexual ethic of the Old Testament, is even reinforced by Jesus in the New Testament. And so, not only are we not just to not commit adultery, we are not even to lust after our neighbor's wife. Not only are we not to kill our neighbor, we're not even to be angry with our neighbor. So these these moral precepts of the Old Testament law are picked up, and all the sexual precepts of the Old Testament law are picked up in the New Testament and even reinforced. And we see Paul even um, clearly condemning homosexual practice. So this idea that we're picking and choosing Old Testament laws that we will and will not observe is just a misunderstanding of how the Bible fits together. A fifth uh, uh, line of argument is just, hey, you know what? None of us are perfect, and it's not hurting anyone. God's a God of love. These two people love each other. Why don't we just let them love each other? Well, that's a misunderstanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin if we understand what who God is and what sin is and what the consequences of unrepentant sin are, then love compels a Christian to persuade their neighbor that they're at odds with a holy God. And of course, this doesn't just apply to homosexual sin, it applies to all sin. It applies to our neighbor who's living in unrepentant and heterosexual sin. Imagine if you, just think of this, this illustration, that if you, if you were just walking by your neighbor's house and you saw that he's asleep on his couch, his windows, his, his, his curtains pulled open, he's asleep on his couch, and there's a fire in his kitchen, and you just said, well, oh, you know, it's, it's not hurting anybody, it's just, his house will burn down, but it's not. so you, just, you don't tell him. I mean, you would be a horrible person if you didn't wake him up and say, man, there's a fire in your kitchen, and, and let's, let's put it out. But when we see when there is egregious sin in one another's lives, uh, I, I think biblical, faithful, love-driven Christians should point it out. Again, not just towards homosexuality, but all sin. And we need to do that for each other's, in each other's lives. That's part of why we need to be in community with one another, to help one another follow Jesus. And so that, that it, it does hurt people. It will put them at odds with a holy God on the day of judgment. And then the final one uh, is just this idea that, well, what about other sins that the church overlooks? And, you know, to that, I think we just have to say, you know, the world probably has a point there. We We are hypocrites on some level, aren't we? Uh, And we want to root that out at this church. We don't want to overlook some sins. We don't want to be the type of church that overlooks heterosexual sin and only focuses on homosexual sin. We don't want to make this a political issue. We don't want any political party to somehow co-op this or co-op us as Christians for merely a, a voting block. These are spiritual issues. And yes, the church undermines its own witness when it overlooks other sins, when it, when, it, when it doesn't deal with a plank in their own eye and looks at the speck in their brother's eye. Absolutely that's the case. But that doesn't mean because we as a church universal wrestle with this on some level, doesn't mean that, you know, that, that homosexuality is acceptable for the Christian. So can a person practice homosexuality, and be a Christian? Well, to answer that question, we need to think with some nuance. Can, the, the question's even more fundamental. Can a person give themselves over to unrepentant sin and claim to be a Christian? I think the force of the New Testament clearly says no. Whether that sin is homosexuality, or heterosexual sin, or thievery, all, all sorts of sin. We cannot claim to walk in the light and love the darkness. There is this clear pressure in the New Testament to put to death. In fact, listen to what Paul says, Colossians 3, verse 5 and following. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So if we love one another, we're going to say, brother, the wrath of God is coming if you continue to walk in those things. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. So do you see this difference? There's this difference Paul makes of walking in something and living in it and fighting against it. So we all have a category for heterosexuals that wrestle with heterosexual sin. We all have a category for that. And if we've got a young guy in college or just a young single person and they are saying they're trusting in Christ and they fall sexually and they, they commit heterosexual sin with their boyfriend or their girlfriend and they come in repentance to other brothers and sisters and to the church, we don't immediately think, oh my gosh, you're not a Christian because you've committed heterosexual sin. We come around that person We try and encourage their repentance and we exhort them, we exhort ourselves, take God's side against your sin. And we need to say the same thing to a person who is dealing with homosexual sin. A person can, I think, legitimately struggle with homosexual desire and fight against it as a sinful desire and maybe occasionally fall, just like a heterosexual person can fall in heterosexual sin and repent and take God's side against their sin. Now, if the heterosexual sinner just keeps giving themselves over to it and it says, you know what, forget it guys, I don't care what the Bible says and I don't care what my church teaches, I'm going to live with my boyfriend and girlfriend and I'm going to give myself over to sex outside of marriage and I'm going to live in this, deal with it, and I think I'm a Christian. That person's soul is in danger. And we need to say the same thing about a homosexual person with homosexual urges who's giving themselves over and saying, I'm going to live in this. God is okay with this. I don't care what you or the Bible say. This is between me and God, and I'm okay with it. That person's soul is in danger. Both types of sin are incompatible with what the Bible says a Christian is. And we need to help each other fight against that. Much quicker, much quicker, what about transgenderism? What does the Bible say about transgenderism? Well, you know, quite frankly, the Bible just doesn't address it directly. But by clear implication, it's just clearly not compatible with God's created order. And thus, it is sin, and it's indicative of the terrible confusion that is brought about by the fall. Um, so what are the arguments? What are the arguments for transgenderism that are being offered by some people that would call themselves Christians. There's this, the only one that I was really could find was this young man named Austin Hartke, who has written a book called Transforming the Bible and Lives of Transgender Christians. He looks at Genesis chapter 1, and in Genesis chapter 1, we see this complementary nature about how there's, you know, the God says light and, uh, and the day and night uh, earth and sky, land and water, male and female. So you see this complementary nature of this, of the, of the, of 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 you know even night and day, earth, and, and sky, water and land, and then male and female. And this young man in his book says that um, this verse does not. When he's talking about Genesis one, this chapter does not discredit other genders any more than the verse about the separation of day from night rejects the existence of dawn and dusk. And he also points to the marshes about how there's this marshy ground that's like a, 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 an ambiguous combination of land and water and the dusk and the dawn. And so he says, because there's this ambiguity and there's this transition from day to night, that's holding out, that's sort of God authorizing people who are ambiguously in between kind of genders. Friends, I think that argument, quite frankly, is just patently absurd. And I, I want to say that with every bit of compassion, but I just don't think that holds any biblical weight at all. Can a person be transgender and a Christian? Again, I would say this is a similar answer to the answer of homosexuality. If a person is giving themselves over and they are clearly rejecting God's created order, then I think they are, just, they are in a sense, a kind of personification of Romans chapter one. And I would say no. It's a rejection of God's created order. But is it possible for somebody to be confused? To be deeply troubled? This world we live in is broken. Maybe horrible things have happened to that person in some way, some unspeakable tragedy. And someone is struggling or confused and and they're wanting to trust in Christ but they also have these urges and these desires to see themselves as the other gender can that person truly be trusting in Christ yes but they too must take god's side against their broken Desires against their disordinate passions? What about somebody that has made a physical transition and actually gone so far as to mutilate their bodies and now has come to faith in Jesus and they've repented? What are we to do with that person? Should they go back? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think we would need some help from wise Christian counsel and Christian ethicists, depending on how. how vulnerable that person may be, just even physically to going back. I don't know. I don't really know what gender reassignment, all this involves and how, how risky that is. But can that person, if they've repented of their sin, regardless of what state they're in, be in heaven? Of course. Of course. So what should our response be? And then we'll open it up for questions just very quickly. What should our response and posture be as Christians towards people that give themselves over to homosexual practice or transgenderism? We must understand the nature of sin, salvation, and Christ-like love, and we must have a broad category for sin. We all struggle with sin, and we must have great compassion on people that struggle in these deep and personal and intimate ways. But we must, we must have clear categories in our head that sin is the problem for every human being And redemption in Christ and following Christ faithfully is the only option for all those that are reconciled to him. Secondly, we should recapture a biblical view of marriage and sex. I think even in the Christian church, we make an idol out of marriage. And we make an idol out of sex. The pinnacle of human existence is not to be married and to have children. It's a great blessing from the Lord. It's a great blessing from the Lord. But we actually, I think, unwittingly make an idol out of marriage and we don't have anything to offer to the celibate Christian who's called into celibacy or to the person who has this disordinate desire that's fighting against that disorder. Maybe a celibate person who, who is, who is, who's got homosexual desire, and is choosing to trust Christ and to be celibate and not act on their desire and to fight against their desire, we need to have a category to say to that person that you are just as human and just as fulfilled and we will come around you and love you. And the epitome of what it means to be a person is not to be married and to have children. Now praise God for marriage and children, but that's not the epitome of what it means to be human. The most human person that ever lived is Jesus and he never had sex and he never had children. We must treat all, thirdly, we must treat all people with dignity and respect and love them all by pointing them to Jesus. So any coarse joking, any rolling of the eyes, any denigration of a person, an image bearer of God, no matter how severe or, or, or unlike us their sin may be, they must be treated with dignity and respect. And this church, this gathering, uh, is always open to people from whosoever, well, from any walk of life, Regardless of what they may be caught up in, we are not going to affirm them and, think, and make them think that just by showing up here that they are right with God and love and respect. One of the clearest ways we can love them is being graciously clear with them that sin is the problem and Jesus is the only answer. And obedience to the clear lifestyle of what it means to follow Christ is their only hope. But of course we love them and we don't shun them. They need Christ and his gospel not to be shunned from it. So we should treat all people obviously with respect. If we have a loved one or a friend who is homosexual or transgender, we should love them. We should stay in relationship with them, but we should be clear about what the gospel is and what sin is. I know there are people in this room who have children who are in this situation, and sometimes the question is asked, should I have them over? Of course, of course. You should love them would I go to the wedding of a family member that was in a, that was getting married in a homosexual union? I don't think I would. I wouldn't condemn a brother or sister who does. I would not. I would not condone the joining together because I don't think that's a biblical union. But I would bend over backwards to maintain that re- relationship and love that person. I would try and be very, very clear about where I stood. And with brokenhearted boldness and tears in my eyes, I would occasionally bring up where I thought they stood in front of a holy God, but of course I would love them, and I would open up my home to them. I think fifthly, finally, we should be aware of our fallen culture's clear intention to disciple us and our children. This is, this is why we need to be people who intake the Bible We intake television shows that are slowly discipling us. They're introducing back, you know, in the 80s, you would have never seen a homosexual character or a transgender character. Now there's not, literally not a TV program where that is not being normalized. And if you think that doesn't have an effect on youth and the next generation of the church, we're fooling ourselves. Culture is discipling us. ESPN and Hollywood are discipling our younger generations that are discipling us. We need to be aware of that. And we shouldn't make heroes out of sports figures and Hollywood celebrities. Those are not our heroes. And don't get all excited when one athlete says something vague about God. We lie about the gospel when we worship athletes. Don't get me started. That's another topic. (laughs) And we must reject indifference about the political process and care deeply about the impact of laws regarding marriage and transgenderism. We should... Of course we should lobby for the protection of all people. Of course Christians should be for laws that prevent hate crimes against all people, of course. Protecting them, yes. Privileging their status, no. I don't think we should argue for that and we should fight against that legislation. So conclusion, if you are a person struggling with this, either of these issues, or you have a family member that is, I want you to know, one, that this, is, this church is a safe place for you. You are not a freak. You're not a weirdo. You're a fallen human being like the rest of us that needs Jesus. You, like every other sinner, have broken desires and orientations. You, like me, must take God's side against your inordinate passions. And you may wrestle with this for the rest of your life on earth just like every heterosexual. The vast majority of heterosexuals in this room will struggle to some degree with sinful heterosexual desire for a majority of their life and must take God's side against their sin. We say to our brother or sister who struggles with inordinate sexual desire, homosexual desire, you may wrestle with this for the rest of your life. And that may mean you being celibate for the rest of your life. But Jesus is better. Sinful sex that will send you to hell is not worth eternity. Okay, questions. As concise as you can make them. Yes, Rebecca.
1: Okay, so my question goes back to a... Um, practicing homosexual who would take this stance of, um, you know, saying they are a Christian still Mm -hmm. and saying that the Bible is only referring to the exploitive type Mm -hmm. of homosexuality, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, You said in regards to, you know, can that person practice homosexuality and still be a Christian, you said, well, we cannot claim to, um, you know, walk in the light, but live in darkness. Well, what do you say about a person who does not see that as darkness? I think that in all this, we haven't really addressed the power of the devil and his ability to deceive. And my question would be, do you think if someone allows themselves to be that deceived or confused, that maybe that is because they are not actually a Christian? Or do you think that he has the power to so confuse someone who, you know, used to choose celibacy and then
0: mm-hmm. gave
1: themselves over to homosexuality.
0: Yeah, it's a good question, Rebecca. I would just, you know, I'm going to lean on how the Bible describes a Christian life that no one who says that they're a Christian and makes a practice of sinning can legitimately say that they're following Christ. And that doesn't just apply to that stripe of sin, it applies to all. So, in that situation with a family member, I would just pray God open their eyes, open their eyes. And you know, I think of that verse in 2 Corinthians. I think it's generally speaking about salvation, but I do think there's some application. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3 and following. In their case, the God, lowercase g, of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I would hold, I would take a verse like that and I would just pray it back to God, and I would say, God, it seems like the devil has blinded. Where, I, Lord, I don't know where their soul is right now. I don't know. What, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know. That's not my business, God. My business is to not determine whether they've tipped over some utility curve of sinfulness to, you know, cause them to be separated. God, help them see this and help them take God your side against sin. And Lord, you can turn the light on in their heart. That's what you do, and you can overcome. The darkness of the enemy who obscures them, and I would just pray that prayer, and pray it, pray it passionately for. For not just people in that situation, pray for my own heart. You know, when I because we all have corners of darkness. Good question, Rebecca. In the back there, I think Wes. Oh no, that's Danny. Danny, yeah. So there, I don't remember the the pastor. There was an article in the past month or so, and it was an evangelical pastor that said that he was fine with the use of preferred pronouns and, and yeah. names, so I, I would ask where's your stance <laughs> on the use of um, preferred pronouns, preferred yeah. names, You know, mm-hmm. using sing, um, singular we and they mm-hmm. type pronouns? Yeah. Speaking of transgenderism, and that was J.D. Yes. Greer, who's the pastor of the Summit Church. He gave an interview to World Magazine uh, in their podcast, I listened to it. He is the acting president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he was asked about this, and he said, "You know, it's probably not a hill I would die on. I think J.D. Greer is a faithful guy. I think each. I think answering a question like that is so difficult because it's, there's going to be dynamics of human relationships that I think are going to going to color how we would answer that question. So the question is, if you have a transgender family member or person a friend who says, you know, refer, a, a, a bi- biological male who now claims that he is a she and wants to be called with a female pronoun, what do you do as a Christian? And um, my instincts would be to, uh, in a public setting, uh, to probably just avoid it in a personal interaction um, if it was a family member, I could see where a Christian could take differing sides on that. I think it's a disputable matter. I think that's really hard to answer in a kind of test tube sort of way. Um, I think I could see where JD Greer was coming from, that it could get antagonistic, and you could probably you know, cut off a relationship if you don't refer to them in the way that they want to be referred to. And that was his answer. I don't know, quite frankly, Danny, how I would do that. I don't think we should get very upset at each other if two Christians come down on different sides on that, though. That's what I would say. Yeah. Let me... Uh, Julie. Right here. Julie Julie Keller right down here in front.
2: Um, <clears throat> excuse me. My question is, how do, as a parent with young kids, yeah. when culture is normalizing it, what is... Um, vocabulary, uh, arguments, that might be the wrong word, that yeah. we can give our yeah. kids who mm-hmm. are just discovering this, who, you know, oh, my friend has two dads. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend wants to be a girl and he's a boy. Like, mm-hmm. what can we tell mm-hmm. our kids yep. that is biblical and maybe doesn't normalize it but is still gentle and loving yeah. because kids will, yeah. ew, that's yeah. gross or yeah, whatever. Yeah.
0: I would be, that's a great question, Julie. I would try and be as non um, uh, like fantastical, you know, with my child and, and and not just like blow it up like, oh, these people are crazy. I would just start, I would say, you know, there are some people who believe that, Johnny. But let's look at what God says about what it means to be human. God created us male and female, and I would just read some clear biblical texts that even a child can see the picture of, like Genesis 1 where God has created us male and female. And that kind of works into a discussion even about biology and sex. And, and, and you know, uh, sweetheart, God has created our bodies to fit together. There are some people who don't believe that. And we think this is the way that God has created us and we think this is what we should believe and this is the way you honor God with your body. And, and then as they progress, I think you can have more, you know, deeper conversations. But I think you just talk to them from the word and you, call sin sin, but not in a, you know, again, just some bombastic sort of way. Because I think you can overhype things so much that it actually can arouse interest by a child in that. And so you just treat sin like sin, and you don't overreact to it. That'd be my thought, my instinct. Does that help, Julie? Yeah. Okay, uh, we'll get to Drew, and then Arlene, and then Renato. Um, I was just kind of curious, like,
3: I think transgenderism, like the term is thrown out a lot. Uh-huh. And just what, what exactly do you mean? And like, does it mean when we say that? Cause if like, I yeah. guess if we're saying that it's wrong, I wouldn't want to have like a wrong idea of what it was to say. Like, yeah. Calling someone, saying someone's in sin when they're not really doing that. So I'm just kind of curious. What do you mean when you say
0: like? I do think it's a broad category. I think it's people who would, I mean, I don't know. Maybe somebody could correct me on this. I'm thinking of anybody that just has some sort of dysphoria, whether that is emotional or physical and somebody who is identifying, maybe, maybe that takes the form of like transvestite dress or maybe it takes the form of like Bruce Jenner, who actually, I think went through some, I don't know if he went through some physical change where people actually will mutilate their bodies. Um, I'm speaking broadly there, but I do think all of it's sin. Regardless of, I think all of that transvestite, uh, whether you're just sort of emotionally identifying as, or whether you're actually taking the steps to n- disfigure your body, I do think it's all sin. Um, yeah. Okay, Arlene. Now let's get up. We're going to have a microphone so we can capture it.
2: The Trinity. The, and what? the Trinity. Mm-hmm. My question comes in like the three parts, mm-hmm. where you have the soul, the body, and the spirit. Triune. And then you have God, the Trinity. My question is that, what is the body, and, and as far as, I always want to say that the body can be culturized, the body is natural, so mm-hmm. you, under, you, you already know the scripture that goes with the flesh is weak, but the mm-hmm. spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess my question, my full question is that in personal res- responsibility and, and the personhood of a person,
0: mm-hmm.
2: how can we as Christians allow a person to go through their own salvation process in working through um, and being better witnesses Of understanding the nature of just sin overall Mm -hmm. because everything really is being in that they're blurring
0: Mm -hmm. it and Mm -hmm. the gospel
2: stands aside and Mm -hmm. look at it but how can we be stronger for that
0: that's a that's a good question Arlene I don't know and I I I think that there's people that are smarter than me that can probably come up with a better answer to that Um, and I don't mean to me I do not mean to be simplistic I just want to say, like, I want to love that person, and I want to give them God's Word. And I think the Word has the power to change a soul and to do those things that I can't. The Word can parse on levels that I could never parse. And so I just want to say, back to that 2 Corinthians verse, I'm going to give them the gospel, and God takes His Word, and He brings life and he brings wholeness, and he brings healing, and he brings reconciliation. And I don't think the average Christian needs to feel the burden to be the expert on all of these things. Some wise people may have much more insight than I do, um, but I think the average Christian needs to feel just equipped to love and to serve with God's word and compassion and patience. And by the way, that's what every sinner needs. Not just people who are, are, are in these particular sins. So that's a great question. And I think that's the, just the, kind of the best I could answer. And I want to encourage all of us to say, none of us need to be experts in all these things to give the gospel to people. Yeah, John, like, give the, and then we'll go to Renato. It's just a short question. Yeah.
2: How do you speak to a five-year-old who says, you know he was born... Yeah. male. But then he yeah. says at age five, he says, I feel like I'm a girl. Yeah. How do you explain that to a five-year-old?
0: Yeah. Well, you don't do like the Hollywood people and the NBA athletes who affirm it. You don't do that. And, we, and let's, so let's stop worshiping celebrity. Um, anyway, you got, that's another hobby horse. I know I'm on that. I just think you just, if, you, if a child is in that situation, I think we, we, you don't overreact and crush that child's heart. I think you love them and you point them into the way, no, sweetheart, that's not the way God has designed us. You know, I can understand that, you don't wanna shun that child, but I would be compassionate and patient. And a child that is thinking that along those lines very likely, I think, needs some, some pretty clear um, biblical counsel by people that are, are probably trained in, in, in some sort of child psychology. Um, but, I th- but again, I would say to a parent that's dealing with that, Don't feel like your compassion and your giving of the word is somehow secondary, just similar to what Arlene is saying. But um, yeah, that's a difficult situation. And I know Christian parents are dealing with it. I know they are. Okay, Renato. Maybe this will be the last question.
3: Hey, Brad. Um, So I had a conversation with... um, a Christian who proclaimed to be uh, transgendered and then went through the process and whatnot. Uh-huh. Um, and when she was telling us that she was going to go through this process, she started quoting scripture, which yeah. kind of threw me off. Yeah. Um, and specifically, she quoted Galatians 3:28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah. And actually I actually had another conversation with someone who was talking about this, and they talked about how God doesn't proclaim to be male or female, so that ambiguity allows us to have ambiguity. So -hmm. what do you say to someone who uses Scripture to justify really not just that sin, but any sin?
0: Yeah. Well, I think God calls himself father in the scripture. So that's, that's one issue. But I would say to that verse in Galatians three, I would just try and help that person realize that that's not the context of what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter three. He's not erasing ethnic distinctions and he's not relation, erasing gender distinctions. He's saying in as much as our standing in redemption and reconciliation before God, that a Jew does not outrank a Gentile and a male does not outrank a female, that we are one in that sense, in our image-bearing of God before him. It does, that, that verse is not erasing gender distinctions, because if that were the case, then Paul would be contradicting himself in 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5 and all of these other places where he clearly teaches gender distinctions, right? So I think that's just a, a kind of an elementary misunderstanding. That's what you call cherry-picking. That's looking at one verse and misunderstanding it and applying it. Now, I wouldn't beat somebody over the head. I would just say, oh, oh, bro, sis, like you're misunderstanding the whole point of that verse. That's not what that verse is teaching. Um, and people do that with the Bible all the time, all the time. And so I think we just have to be patient with them. And again, we have to pray that God would give them illumination and wisdom. So that's a good, that's a good question. All right, we gotta, we're gonna, um, we're, let me pray and we're gonna end. There may be lots of questions that you wanna ask. But in the back, it says nothing to do with tonight. I just want you to know him so you can pray for him. Pastor Randolph Prudent is here. He's coming to our elder meeting to meet with us tonight to tell us about his work. Randolph, raise your hand. Pastor Randolph Prudent is the pastor of Benning Hills Baptist Church in South Columbus, a dear friend of ours. And so we're going to go meet with uh, Brother Pastor Randolph and hear about his church. So I'm going to scoot out of here, um, but you guys can hang around and and, um, talk. So let me pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Lord, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for this time together, Lord. I, I pray for anybody in this room who has a family member who's dealing with any of these issues, who has a child. Lord, this is, this can be so painful. Give mom and dad, brother or sister, wisdom on how to love their family member well, their child or their sibling or their parent well. And we do pray this this Lord this text from 2 Corinthians, that you would shine the light of the glory of Christ in their eyes, and that you would would overcome the darkness of the enemy. If there's anybody in this room who's struggling with these things, Lord, help them take God's side against their sin. All of us are struggling with some measure of sin. Make us not hypocrites, God. Help us to be people that are marked by taking your side against our sin. We need help fighting each other's sin, fighting our own sin with each other's help. And Lord, give us grace to live in this wicked world, compassionately but clearly. And I pray that you'd help us do all these things for the witness of the gospel, and for the good of the church, and for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, folks, this is our last Wednesday night for a while. We'll see you Sunday.